Welcome back to Philosophy of Strength, guys. Another episode of Q&As. We're up to episode number 78, so getting a little bit closer to 100 all the time. Uh, I will be trying to do the podcast a little bit more regularly this year. No promises, but I suppose it wouldn't be too hard to improve from the roughly episode every three weeks to a month that I was doing in uh, 2023. So, answering some some cues. If you have any questions that you want answered, I typically take these on Instagram on a Sunday. Uh, I will respond with a brief answer on my story, and then I like to kind of flesh it out on the podcasts because... Usually, giving a sufficient answer to the chaotic, complicated world of fitness and people's problems that they encounter requires a little bit of uh, nuance with the explanations. Uh, As I usually say at the start of the podcast, if you enjoy it, give it a five-star rating on Spotify so that more people can find it. Okay, so first question... Overrated or underrated, lengthened partials. So for people who don't know what a lengthened partial is, well, a partial rep is one that isn't done with a full range of motion that's available to the joint. Um, So we're only working part of the range of motion. A lengthened partial means that we're starting from the lengthened position of the muscle and we're gonna pull just a little bit of the way up, not gonna go all the way to fully shortened. So if you were to picture a bicep curl, the bicep is fully lengthened when your arm is extended. So if you've got a straight arm, the dumbbell's hanging down, you're in the lengthened position. So a lengthened partial would be doing something like starting from that position and only pulling until your elbow's about, say, halfway bent. Uh, These seem to have started becoming trendy. I believe there is research, like a meta-analysis that was published recently that, um, you know, lent a lot of weight towards using them for hypertrophy training. Um, But as usual, people tend to take something that is really quite a small bit of positive information about something and then jump to crazy wacky conclusions about just exactly how useful these things are or how many people it really applies to. So, I mean, bodybuilders have been doing stuff like this for decades, um, usually with the justification that it either helps them feel the target muscle more, they feel like they get more of a pump. Um, and I've certainly done stuff like this before. I think it can be useful if you really struggle with the mind-muscle connection with a particular muscle group. Uh, so certainly it has helped me to feel my um, my pecs and my biceps more when I wasn't overly concerned about the range of motion so much as actually trying to get that muscle to work. I do think that there are some major limitations, though, with length and partials, particularly for the average person. So we have to bear in mind that like length and partials are things that are primarily being used by advanced bodybuilders. And so those are people who have built a very strong foundation 
of strength on basic movements and they've built a lot of muscle mass already and so it's kind of like an additional tool that's being used to eke some extra gains the problem that i have with the whole length and partials becoming trendy thing is that the majority of consumers of fitness content even advanced fitness content aren't actually advanced trainees they're actually beginners to intermediates at best so there is a lot of there's a, there's a high likelihood that people are going to just start doing lengthened partials on everything and a lot of them are people who can probably only do a few chin-ups can probably barely squat their body weight for a few reps and i'm not saying that to uh you know disregard their efforts or make fun of them or anything it's just that they're skipping the basics that they've yet to master and looking at something like length and partials as like a secret sauce or a magic bullet it's that whole um this one secret thing mentality that i've discussed in the podcast a lot of times before so length and partials i'd say they're overrated because at the moment there seems to be a lot of people talking about them some coach came out recently who's reasonably well respected and says he does it for all of his training now i think you could probably get away with doing that if you're only training for muscle mass and you do a great job on everything else but remember that if you want to be generally strong strength is by and large gained in the range that it's trained um so if you start doing lengthened partials on your squats bench presses deadlifts etc you know you're not going to be gaining the ability to lift heavy things through a normal full range of motion and it's probably not going to be great for your mobility either next up what are my favorite workout finishers whether core cardio grip or other uh I'm not a huge fan of the idea of a finisher just because to me that is synonymous with lazy programming that proliferates this idea that you need to finish a session feeling exhausted for it to have been productive. I do understand what you're saying though. Like there are some times where I just want to do something hard at the end of the session for the sake of it um so usually i'll do some kind of conditioning um so that could be doing like a circus with say an assault bike paired with a skier paired with some skipping or it could be just taking some isolation work that i'm doing to failure and even say for example throwing in some of those length and partial things just to like really take things uh all the way to failure which by the way not to go back to that question but that is uh, one other argument for those is that you know it allows you to get that little bit of extra work in after you've already failed on full range of motion so uh but uh yeah i think you know focus on minimum effective dose when it comes to your training and finishers is really kind of a divergent philosophy from that that i don't think is very helpful if you really want to be training and making progress if you want to be finishing in a heap on the ground covered in sweat panting really hard and that's really important to you you know do anything that's high intensity full body for 10 or 15 minutes pair upper and lower body stuff and you'll be exhausted you know crossfit figured out that that was something that a lot of people really like you pair box jumps with thrusters with push-ups and assault bike and people are going to be totally knackered at the end and assume that 
that means that that was a great work case but you know not a lot of people are are going to do that and be able to make progress for a long period of time nothing specifically against crossfit just that came to mind uh next question how's the back thanks for asking um i think i've mentioned on here before already that i have a bit of a back injury at the moment um it is progressing reasonably well i think what can be quite discouraging with many injuries is that they very rarely will progress linearly so it's not like you just keep on making progress with being able to add weight back every single session it's not like you just keep on getting less and less um, pain or symptoms as you go um, there is a, an element of chaos to it where there's some days that are better than others but the thing that i've tried to keep reminding myself of is that it is actually getting better on average and I suppose the really good indicator of that is that the bad days that I have now are much less severe than what the bad days were like at the start. So it's just something that's going to take a while. Um, and I'm glad that it happened to me at this age because I think that if I got an injury like this when I was like 22, I would have been pulling my hair out and freaking out about not being able to lift the same weights. But being a bit older and more mature now and having had other injuries and just being thankful for being able to do any amount of training um i'm pretty happy still being able to plug away on upper body pretty hard and you know the few lower body exercises that i know won't give me any issues uh next question is it realistic to get bodybuilder jacked training twice a week honestly man probably not you know like if we're i don't know what your definition of bodybuilder jacked is but if you're talking about the guys that you see online um, who, by the internet standards, are considered people with really phenomenal physiques, I really don't think so, unless you're taking a lot of drugs and you've got really good genetics. It's just very difficult to squeeze the amount of training volume that you need to stimulate that amount of muscle gain into just two training days. You'd be in the gym for like two or three hours at a time probably and then you'd also start running into issues with injuries as well so um probably not two days a week is for like the average person who just wants to be a bit stronger and a bit fitter and is trying to make it fit around you know work relationships potentially kids stuff like that so no if you want to get bodybuilder jacked you probably need to be training I like I don't even I don't even know if three days a week is enough to be honest. A lot of those guys train pretty much every single day, and I think some of them train twice a day. Um, thoughts on fitness expos? That's the next question. Fitness expos. If you don't know what those are, they're they're these events where they'll rent out a a big say like warehouse or event center and all these influencers will come supplement companies clothing brands and it's basically like a big marketing thing for the fitness industry uh there's a big one in the uk called body power i think um the arnold would be like the 
the obvious one in the states but actually i think that one's got a bit more credibility because um you know it just tends to have people that are a little bit more kind of performance oriented at it as far as i know um and you know sometimes they'll have like some exhibition lifting related and bodybuilding posing type stuff at these things my thoughts on it it's not for me you know like it just looks like wanksville basically like i don't like the whole ostentatious super vain super narcissistic just you know aesthetic obsessed part of the fitness industry which realistically is the mainstream the, ma the majority of the fitness industry is that um, it's what people want. People want to train to look better and they want to follow people who look a certain way and they're going to trust those people to tell them what products to buy. Um, I just find the whole thing very seedy, very disingenuous, very fake. Um, it's just, it's not my kind of vibe. They're not my kind of people. Um, I would never want to go to one, to be honest. Doesn't mean that I wouldn't go to any kind of a fitness event, but honestly, I like to keep a pretty small circle. There's a very small number of what I think are very good coaches that I've managed to find in this country. Um, and I've pretty much had almost all of them on the podcast. I'm not saying that the people that I've had on the podcast are the only good coaches in the industry. It's just of all the ones that I've met, those are the ones who I think are really, really good and have, you know, similar outlooks or philosophies to me. Um, there's some people that I would like to have on, but I know it probably just wouldn't be for them. So, you know, if you haven't been asked, don't take offense in that sense. I just reckon that a podcast wouldn't be your kind of thing. But, uh, you know, the... The whole fitness expo thing, yeah, not for me. I'd rather just get a coffee with a coach that I think is really good and and chat to them and socialize in that kind of way. Uh, next one, tips for navigating a commercial gym in January. Um, God love you. That's first and foremost because there's very little that you can do in that it's just not going to be the same environment that you would be used to operating in where you can reliably get access to equipment, you can reliably get in and out of there in the same time. Um, you're gonna be dealing with people who like very understandably don't understand gym etiquette, um, don't understand how to use certain pieces of equipment, but at the same time, it is frustrating, you know, if you're coming in to do squats in January and there's a guy standing in the squat rack doing bicep curls and foam rolling, you know. He doesn't know any better and you will look like an asshole if you go up and tell him to buzz off because you need the squat rack. Now, in terms of what I'd recommend is really adopting that whole mindset of perfect is the enemy of the good or good enough. Um, so the big thing really is just to be very flexible going in, 
have a good idea of different exercises that you can sub in for whatever you have planned and you probably want to avoid programming anything that is likely to involve using a really popular machine so I don't really know if it's worth having something like lat pull downs, certainly not pec decks. Jesus, like 15 year olds will just congregate in groups of like five or six around the pec deck machine. Like anything that involves chest, basically. Um, so probably you're going to want to stay away from machines because beginners like to to go towards those because you know they're they're easier to understand how to use than just you know walking up to a pair of dumbbells in a rack and not really knowing what to do with them um so probably want to try to focus on free weight exercises a lot of people probably aren't aren't going to want to hear this which is indicative of why it would be a good option but body weight stuff very good choice for if you're in a gym in january because well, if there's pull-up bars, most beginners can't do pull-ups, so it's a lot more likely that, say, like calisthenic rigs and stuff like that are going to be free, so, you know, maybe consider working on dips for that month instead of bench press. Um, maybe if all the squat racks are going to be taken, you might need to occasionally work in lunges instead or something like that. Uh, I think I've said it before on the podcast, but if your gym has like a prowler or a sled, nobody ever uses that fucking thing because it's cardio and they also tend to not really know what it is. So that would be my advice. Um, If you really want to go the way of sticking to certain exercises, you're going to have to get comfortable with having awkward conversations with people where you ask how many sets they have left, where you ask if you can work in with them. Um... I really don't recommend doing that thing where you just wait around for equipment because uh, it's just super frustrating when your ability to get in and out of the gym is dictated by how long somebody is spending on their phone in between sets. So personally, having trained in a gym, a public gym last year um, and seen all the, the New Year's resolutioners in and everything, uh i just was super flexible with my workouts and would just jump on whatever was free and was working the same kind of muscle groups that i wanted to hit uh and you'll, you can still make a good bit of progress um doing that uh next up your favorite and proudest lift of all time uh, that would probably be the 200 kilo squat that I got back in 21, I believe. I think so. Uh, just the, yeah, the Chris, or just before the Christmas of 21, like December. Um, why is it my favorite and proudest lift of all time? Um, just the sheer amount of work that it took to get, and because it was one of those things that... I put on a pedestal for so long that I was working towards, you know, when I was down in like the 130, 140 zone on my squats, that was something that just didn't seem like I would never get there, but it just seemed so far away. And it was, I mean, it took me, I was probably squatting 140 for a a PR back when I was like 20 one or something like that 20 um 
uh, maybe more like 1920 and uh, I didn't hit that 200 kilo squat until I guess I would have been like 27 in 2021 so it was a solid sort of seven years of work and you know knowing what I know now um, I probably could have shaved a good few years off of that uh, but actually, that's part of the reason why the 200 kilo squat is my favorite and proudest lift because it forced me to really learn a lot more about what actually works in training. I remember I got up to 160 and I was stuck at 160 for, I think it was at least two years, maybe three years. And it was during that time that I was I was in college, so I was being exposed to an awful lot of sports science stuff, and a lot of stuff that sounded great in theory that I would try to put into practice. So really advanced periodization concepts, and you know the importance of like getting perfect percentages in your deloads and all this sort of stuff, uh, and it totally distracted me from what had been working for me before. I got into the weeds of training, which was just training really hard. Um, and it was, you know, the combination of getting back to focusing on the effort that I was putting in and also accepting that I was going to have to gain some body weight that meant that I was able to put like 20 kilos on my squat then in the next year. Um, and yeah, so the 200 kilo squat funnily enough i'm not super happy with the depth on the 200 kilo squat if i'm being honest i think it would arguably pass in the powerlifting meet but uh i don't know i i think i would love to do it again at some point and just get it that little bit lower but i'm still proud of it because i think that it was good enough for me and if um as I said, it took a lot of work um, and figuring things out about training to get there. So it, it actually really, it served me well. Uh, next question, how to do squat and deadlift if I can only train once per week? This one's really simple, man. You just alternate them. So depending on, you know, how long you have to train, what other exercises you're trying to work on, you could either just do... Um, so you would alternate them as in you would have week A would be training the squat and week B would be training the deadlift. If you have quite a bit of time to train, I would suggest uh, working in an accessory lift of whatever you're not training as the heavy one. So for example, on the squat week, you could still do a, like a lighter deadlift or an RDL, say for sets of like 8 to 12 or whatever. And then, likewise, if it's the, the deadlift day and you're training it heavier, um, you could do a squat that's more on the volume side of things. And uh, and you can work it like that. Um, you know, regardless, if you're, if you're training once a week, if you're a beginner, you'll make progress with that. If you're more advanced, you won't. But uh, that's okay because you're probably just trying to keep things ticking along and that'll be enough to help maintain your strength. Next one then, do you think 1RMs are dangerous and useless for the average lifter? Uh, definitely not, no. Um, are they dangerous? I don't 
think it would be fair to say that they're dangerous. Um, I mean, resistance training in general is very safe, assuming that you're making smart decisions. I do think that if you're taking an absolute limit 1RM where it is, you know, a bone-on-bone effort, you probably are flirting with a slightly higher chance of getting hurt than, you know, if you're doing sets of five with one or two reps in the tank. I do believe that because it's a it's a stimulus your body hasn't been exposed to before. So there there's a certain weight for everybody where something can break or something can tear. If you're picking a smart um a smart one RM attempt, like you're not just gonna have a go at something that's like way above what you've ever done before then I think it's still unlikely to happen, but, you know, it, it, I think there is always going to be a risk. You, you don't, there's no such thing as a free lunch, you know, so if you're going to push hard and continue getting stronger at a certain point, I do believe that you get, get to a stage where continuing to hit new weights comes with the cost uh, for your body. And... Some people would dispute that. Um, it would be cool to see some research on us, but uh, yeah, I, th- I think that I wouldn't call them dangerous. But if you're just occasionally doing a one rep max, and you're making smart decisions, and you're not like a super advanced lifter or anything, then no, they're not dangerous. Just don't do them all the time. Um, whether or not they're useless. Look, you definitely don't have to do one rep maxes. You can measure strength gain with a five rep max, a three rep max, whatever you want, really. Like a one rep max is just for your maximal strength being measured. What I would say is that it just comes down to your preference. I think if you're really into lifting weights, you're naturally going to want to know what's the most weight you can lift. And doing a one rep max is the only way to do that. If you don't care about that, let's say like you're more interested in gaining muscle, you absolutely don't need to be doing one rep maxes. Um, And uh, like I said, you can measure your strength in other ways. So just make sure that if you're maxing out, it's because it's something that you want to do and it's not something that you're doing all the time. The vast majority of your training should be sub-maximal training with weights that you absolutely know that you can handle. Next question is a big one. Um, I'll try not to ramble too long on this. How do we know when to rotate out exercises or change rep ranges? This, this is a question that I think really, from what I can tell, most coaches don't actually have a cogent philosophy on. And I think this is... This question is a perfect example of why it's so important to have a training philosophy because you have to have some kind of a system in place for making decisions. Because people will say things like, oh, well, it depends. Yeah, of course it depends, but what does it depend on? What are what are the things that you're looking at and how are you going to make a decision based on what feedback you get about what's happening with those things? I mean, my personal philosophy is that for the most part, I'm going to utilize the big basic lifts 
that are super reliable for progressing on and giving us a nice stimulus of strength and muscle gain. So a squat, a bench press, a deadlift, and a press. Um, if people have you know a preference to do a specific type of one of those, like if they want to do a front squat instead of a back squat, if they want to do, uh, I don't know, sumo deadlift or trap bar deadlift, if they want to do dumbbell bench instead of barbell bench, not something I'd really recommend, but you know, as long as we're getting those basic movements in, um, I keep those the same for the most part, pretty much year round. Um, I'll definitely change up the, the loading schemes. So I wave the intensity and the volume on those. So we're not just constantly pounding the same weights. Uh, but then I will get the variety from the, uh, the assistance and accessory exercises. And those can be changed out a lot more frequently. Um, although it tends to be the case that I'll use, um, the, so the assistance exercises would be the ones that are kind of changed a medium amount and they tend to still be the same kind of pool of exercises. So I might do dips for a few weeks and then swap to doing dumbbell bench, but dips are still going to come back in at some point and they won't be out of the program long enough that you know, I wouldn't be able to just jump straight back in to pretty much the exact same work I was doing on them and potentially make progress again. Um, and then the accessory exercises, like things like curls, uh, leg curls, face pulls, ab work, like you just, you just blast that stuff and you can change it at a whim if you want. If you want to do hammer curls today and um, barbell curls the next time I don't think it really matters at all like aside from the fact that obviously if there's one particular uh, muscle group that you think you really need to bring up like say it's your chest you just need to make sure that you're hitting your chest more often throughout the week but I don't think you know you need to be progressing the weight that you do on your cable flies in the same way that you do on say like your your bench press because those exercises work in small muscle groups they're just so slow to progress that you won't really make progress that way what you're looking to do is actually just stimulate the muscle by getting tons of work into it getting a proper good pump um, and that's where you can get an awful lot of novelty is with those isolation accessory exercises so that's my personal philosophy. Some people have a philosophy where they always change things out every four to six weeks or whatever. Um, I don't know, it just that doesn't really make sense to me. I don't see the need for that. Uh, obviously, all of this is subject to what the client wants that I'm working with, uh, but that is the training philosophy that I start from and that has worked really well for me. Um, and, you know, feeding back to what I was saying about that, getting the 200 kilo squat, you know, when I was stuck in the 160s, I would have been changing my main squat exercise quite a lot back then. And, uh, and then I started figuring out that, you know, if I want to get better at back squats, they probably need to be in my program just about every single week. Some exercises you can get away with changing, like, you know, some people will find they can go from back squats to front squats, and when they come back, it's actually positively affected their back squat. 
Um, but it takes takes a while. It takes a good bit of training experience to figure that sort of stuff out. And you actually need to be lifting weights heavy enough that you could, you know, see yourself failing because of an issue that could be rectified by doing another exercise. So typically, people who are in that beginner intermediate stage, they they need less variety of the exercises than they think they do. Okay, there's still a few here, so I'm just gonna not blast through these, but I'll go a little bit quicker. Um, next question, is it normal for gyms to have poor commission schemes? I don't really know. I mean, what I will say is normal is for new, fresh-faced personal trainers to get massively financially exploited by gym owners who just want to cook costs. Um, so I would be surprised if that doesn't also uh, affect the commission schemes that Jim set up. Uh, in the gym that I started working in, I didn't get any commission for signing people up. So, you know, there's that. Um, now, you will also find that gyms will have different kind of deals that they try to set up with personal trainers. So, the classic one is the whole you don't pay rent, but that means that you do, you know, X number of classes per week for free for us. Or maybe part of that might be doing, um, you know, intro sessions with people that you would be trying to sign up. Um, I would really strongly suggest that you try to avoid that as best you can. Although I am also very aware that beggars can't be choosers. And there's just not that many gyms out there that are going to pay people a fair wage for doing work. Um, what, what generally happens with the former example of the, you know, work in lieu of rent is that there's a, there's an implication that you're going to have all this spare time and energy and uh, warm leads walking around your gym that you're going to be able to use to build your own personal training business inside of their gym. But you need to think about this for a second because people just don't let you make free money in their gym. Uh, so what actually happens is that you get stuck with doing a shitload of classes that you're not getting paid for. Um, you'll oftentimes get stuck with doing shit like cleaning and stuff like that. And you, if there's other personal trainers in the gym who are also doing that, you're going to be directly competing with them for these probably very small percentage of members in that gym who would actually want to do personal training, particularly if it is not a... a a premium uh, style gym that's charging at a premium for memberships. So, you know, if this is a gym that's charging somewhere in the 40, 50 euro a month mark or even less for a membership, you, you've, you've got a bunch of people training in there who probably can't afford or just don't want to spend that much money on fitness. So it's just not going to work out. Maybe you'll get a couple of clients out of it, but even if you do, they're not going to pay you a livable wage. And now you're also spending all of this time and energy on doing free work for the gym 
that leaves you with very little resources left over to actually do that work to get a couple of PT clients. Um, now I got paid for taking classes. There was a lot of extra stuff I did that I didn't get paid for. Um, but really what you're looking to do, if you want to become a personal trainer, and I, what I would recommend you do is um, probably have a day job where you actually get paid for your time. Start doing personal training on the side. Be willing to put a lot of time into it. You probably will have to start training people for free. Um, as you get better at it, obviously start charging and allow the demand for your time uh, to be the thing that dictates when you actually move into that as a full-time thing. So if you're good at it, you should have people start trying to get you to do more days of training with them. Um, and that's a good sign. And then obviously, depending on the flexibility with your actual, your other job, you want to start trying to pull back on that slightly. And then you want to get to the point where, you know, you feel like you're kind of gasping for air in terms of your time. And that's when you would drop the main job and then you would start trying to pay rent to work out of a facility or something like that. Um, that would be my recommendation uh, because you'll make more money than if you are uh, working as like a person taking classes because that's just, it's not, it's not a long-term, uh, it's not a long-term financial plan. Um, Jesus, I said that I was going to do a short answer to that question. Okay, suggestions for pull workouts with a hand injury. Wrist is fine. Hooks useful. Uh, I don't know what you mean by hooks. Pull workouts with a hand injury. Um, I don't know what type of hand injury it is. I don't have very much experience with working with hand injuries. Wrist injuries, yes, but hand could be tricky, you know, if you're not able to actually, like, wrap your fingers around stuff. Um, straps might be helpful. Uh, you may just, you're probably just going to have to go in and, and play around with adjusting the waist, adjusting the exercises, figuring out what angles you can put your hand at that aren't sore and just working with what you can. Sorry, I know that's not like a super helpful answer, but it's just not a lot of detail there. Uh, which training books would you recommend? Uh, practical programming for strength training, the, um, starting strength one uh people give starting strength a lot of shit but it is actually one of the few books that goes into literally showing what a training cycle where real life happens should look like so it, it shows like how you reset the weight when you start getting stuck and and stuff like that and how you migrate from doing a linear progression to starting to use you know waving volume and intensity and stuff like that so you know, you don't have to, and I certainly don't agree with every single thing that Mark Ripito says to get a lot of value from that book. And it's got a, a co-author who's actually quite a, a smart coach, um, Andy Baker. Uh, the next one I'd recommend would be 531, probably 531. Well, the original is very good. I would go 531 and the 531 Forever book. 531 is the most principles-grounded kind of training book that I've ever read before and that you could read that book not do the program but if you just applied those principles to whatever program you are doing you would instantly start making much better progress um, and it's just really common sense stuff 
So I don't do the 531 program, but I've taken a huge amount from it, a huge amount from Jim Wendler's ability to simplify training by applying principles uh, and just, yeah, cutting through the bullshit. Uh, then, you know, less so the next three scientific principles of strength training. That's the juggernaut training one. Again, uh, fairly well principles based. There's some stuff in there, I think, oversteps the mark a little bit in terms of, you know, maybe making some pretty strong claims about what is and isn't a smart way to train for strength versus hypertrophy uh, that I think is just like looking at mechanistic data. But in general, it's it's pretty good, and uh, it's definitely uh, worth a read. Little Black Book of Training Wisdom by Dan Clether, uh, a good kind of oversight again of principles. Again, that's you know the the under the undercurrent theme here is principles over methods. And lastly, not really a training book at all, but actually has. Uh, very much influenced my training philosophy, my coaching, my business in the last year since I read it. Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb is a phenomenal book that I think everyone should read. That uh, really is about, I suppose, systems that succeed in the reality of the chaos of life. And uh, training is no different um strategies that we might employ for trying to improve our habits around nutrition and sleep are no different basically we want to try to create systems that thrive on the chaos of life not things that uh approach our problems with the best case scenario in mind because that rarely if ever happens so uh definitely give anti-fragile to read um Next then, best ab exercises for performance. A powerlifter slash strongman looking to make something. The last part there is cut off. Uh, honestly, I don't really do direct ab work a lot. Um, I probably should do a little bit more just to give myself a little bit more definition there. I can get a bit of a keg sometimes if I uh, let the nutrition slip and don't do any ab stuff. But... Um, the ones that I like are hanging raises, either knee or leg raises, depending on your ab strength. Uh, and sit-ups, uh, weighted sit-ups I like as well. Um, there was a really good sit-up or kind of crunch machine in a gym that I trained in a few years ago where you kind of were like lying on a bench and your feet were hooked under these pads and then your head was supported and then there were handles just outside your head. So you kind of pulled on the handles and then crunched your, your stomach up towards your knees. And that was really tough. Uh, but, you know, outside of that, maybe I'd do the odd kind of plank variations like Superman plank, shoulder taps, uh, some hollow holds, things like that. But um, the rest of it I just get from, from lifting heavy stuff and bracing tight on it. And... Uh, it's worked okay so far. Uh, next question. Do you work for a gym or are you freelance? If freelance, do you have some kind of agreement with a gym that you can train clients there? Yes, I'm freelance. I'm self-employed. I rent space in a personal training studio. Uh, 
and in return i get to to train my clients in there whenever i want and it's a nice nice private place with its own separate floor above where any classes take place and uh very happy there and then the rest of my business is online uh, would you rather drink piss or eat shit uh, clearly drink piss. Why would anybody choose to eat shit? That's just, you've got mental problems. Uh, how many, how many times have you skipped the gym to play games? My nemesis. Uh, very few. Um, I mean, without sounding like a bit of a wanker, I really don't tend to miss workouts very much. Primarily because I just really like training. Like, I've, I'm very understanding that a lot of people don't enjoy training and exercise, and they just do it because they know it's the right thing to do for their health, etc. And that takes a tremendous amount of um, discipline and maturity and all the rest. But, like, for the most part, I mean, there's a reason why I train six to seven days a week. When I'm back running, it'd be seven days a week. It's because I just really like moving my body and 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 pushing my limits physically um i'm lucky in that sense that that's something that i enjoy so like for me gaming and lifting are like two of my favorite things so i'd be like why would i choose one over the other i'll just go to the gym and then i'll come home and play games in the evening so very little or very few times can i remember that happening um although if a new elder scrolls comes out i could be taking like two weeks off everything and just hide in my room finishing that game what do you think causes the severe injuries in gym uh people tearing biceps triceps etc this is gonna be the last question uh first off this question it kind of implies that this is something that happens a lot when like this is an example of social media really warping our idea of what normality is like the reason that we see videos of people tearing their biceps blowing their back out getting crushed by a squat bar is because it's so rare and it's so out of the ordinary so people want to watch it because they're like wow i haven't seen that before I mean, if you train in a local gym, think about how many times have you actually seen somebody really badly hurt themselves in there? Probably very few, if ever. And like, I've only ever seen one severe injury in a gym before that was a bicep tear. And it was because a guy did a, he basically wanted to attempt a one-arm chin-up, but uh, he unfortunately approached it in quite a silly way where he did the chin-up first uh, so he was already up at the top of the bar and then just took one hand off the bar and all of a sudden his arm had to take all of his body weight um, probably would have been smarter to start from a dead hang and try pull there of course he wasn't if you know anything about one-arm chin-ups you're not just going to attempt one for the crack and get it like it's extremely difficult and takes much longer than getting your first uh, regular chin-up so that's the only time that i've seen somebody tear something in the gym and even that could have been very easily avoided uh in terms of what causes severe injuries in the gym it's just people going too heavy and doing 
and ignorance like that example is just an example of ignorance because if that guy would have have asked me um what do you think about this i'm gonna try a one-arm chin-up i would have said just try it from a hang and he would have tried to pull and nothing would have happened and his bicep probably would have been okay uh so it's kind of like not really understanding how loading affects movement and not understanding that you just you got to take the principle of start light progress slowly you also need to pair that with the principle of full range of motion that you can control and if you do that your odds of getting hurt badly in the gym are like super duper low um any of the injuries that i've seen on social media it's either guys who are up to the gills and steroids and lifting like at the peak of their genetic potential for strength where yes stuff like i mentioned earlier in the podcast there is a risk that stuff is going to snap when you're doing that because you're pushing the body to its limits but any of the ones that you see happening to regular people in the gym they're just picking stupid weights that they can't control and they probably started with a dumb approach and then added weight to that so they probably started with their back squats where they you know they wanted to be able to do 60 kilos on the first day just so they can say that it played each side so they did that but it meant they could only go a quarter of the way down so they didn't have full control of a full range of motion and then they added weight to that and you know you, you play stupid games you win stupid prizes basically so it's actually really, really rare to get badly hurt in the gym if you're doing stuff with even a modicum of intelligence. But I don't mean that to be insulting to people who are new to the gym because obviously they're not going to know. But in terms of the approaches that they're actually taking that gets them hurt, it's dumb. So anyway, that'll do it for today on our Q&A hope you guys enjoyed as i said leave a five-star review send it to somebody who you think might benefit maybe you know somebody who's doing some quarter squats who needs to learn the way and um that'll do us for today until next time